Turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. We're going to look at the first 15 verses of the first chapter of the book of Romans. The the gospel of God, Romans chapter 1. Today we begin a new sermon series from Paul's letter to the church in the capital city of Rome. Last week we finished up our series from Luke's gospel. As we go through this series in the book of Romans, I want to urge you to listen each week as one sermon builds upon another sermon to be sure each sermon could stand along and have meaning. But as we put them all together, they build a comprehensive collage of the theology of Paul and reflecting of the Jesus event. From time to time, scientists have sent space probes to Mars. The object of the exercise, of course, is to find more about that planet. Although it's our closest neighbor, it's still over a hundred million miles away. For centuries, people have imagined there might be life on Mars, even intelligent life on Mars. And undoubtedly, there are so many things to be learned if we could actually get there. If we could only go there safely and sort all the things out and figure out what was going on. Well, a lot of people feel like about the Apostle Paul, like we think about the planet Mars, Romans in particular. Most people have a nodding acquaintance with the Christian faith and are aware that Paul was probably the most important figure in the early church, especially the earliest days. And many of us know that Romans is his greatest letter Ever. And some have even heard the powerful effect that reading Romans has had on, well, the history of the church as people are converted by just reading this letter. It's happened over and over again. But to many Christians, the book of Romans remains as much a mystery as Mars. They'll say something like, well, I, I read it once like a scientist describing yet another failed probe into Mars. But I got bogged down, and well, I just, I got to that chapter, and I I just couldn't understand. I couldn't work it out. Well, starting today, we're going to take a trip to Paul's planet of Romans together, and we're going to figure it out. I can say without exaggeration that Romans has had greater influence upon the church than any other letter written by any other person. The letter to the church at Rome, Romans, has had more influence on the church of Jesus Christ than any other letter written by any other person at any other time. In fact, Augustine of Hippo was converted by reading a passage in Romans, and that started an important phase for the church. In fact, the framer of the Reformation himself, Martin Luther, found an unleashing of a new spiritual life in reading the book of Romans. He said his heart was pricked, and in fact, Luther describes Romans this way. The epistle is really the chief part of the New Testament and is truly the purest gospel. It is worthy not only that every Christian should know it word for word by heart, but also that he should occupy himself with it every day as daily bread for the soul. Reading Romans, Luther found faith 
in Christ. John Wesley was converted by reading Luther's introduction to the book of Romans. Karl Barth changes everything away from sterile liberalism back to biblical theology when he got interested in this letter called Romans. Now, Romans is a long letter, and we can't go by every verse word for word, but we will give you a comprehensive understanding of the thought and the movement of this great lengthy, lengthy epistle. Well, let me give you some comparisons. Cicero wrote 796 letters. They averaged 295 words per letter for Cicero. Seneca wrote 124 letters. They averaged 995 words. Paul's 13 letters in the New Testament, if you put them all together and you average them out, his letters are yet still a bit longer at 1,300 words. But Romans is 7,100 words. In fact, the length alone makes it one of the, the most remarkable works in all of antiquity. An unusual letter indeed. The letter is written by Paul. No one really debates that. At this time, Paul had been in ministry for 25 years. He wasn't a recent graduate of the seminary looking for his first church. He had a grounding in all this theology of Christ Jesus. He was a seasoned churchman, a veteran theologian who had pondered all the great themes and theology of the faith. But Paul had never been to Rome. He had never visited those to whom he's writing. We're not even really sure how this church was founded, how it got started. But we do know that Paul has longed to visit them forever. And by the time he writes a letter, there's already an established, thriving church in this capital city of the Roman Empire. The church might have been founded this way. You know, in Acts chapter 2, when Peter is preaching, we find out that there are people from all over the Roman Empire visiting Jerusalem. And here's a businessman. He hears the apostle preach the gospel. He's converted. And for the businessman, the marketer, the merchant, all roads lead to Rome. Here's the slave that travels through Jerusalem. He hears the message. He's with his master. So by merchant and slave, all traveling through Jerusalem back to Rome, why, through travel and trade, a church is born in Rome. Now, the Roman Christians didn't gather as just one big place of worship. In fact, throughout this letter, he will address five different house churches. So there are multiple gatherings of people in the capital city and the various quarters of Rome. At least five identified in this letter. Five different places, probably five plus, where the Christians were gathered together in houses and worshiping Christ Jesus. Roman historian Suetonius says that the emperor Claudius expelled all the Jews from Rome. It seems as if there in the first century, in the capital city of Rome, the Jews were arguing over, Suetonius says, a one Crestus, which most take to be Christ himself. This Crestus is Christus, who is Christ. So we do have evidence from a Roman historian 
that there in the capital city of Rome, the Jews were bickering and fighting in their quarters and they were arguing over Crestus. What we have going on is this, that we have evidence in it in the book of Acts where Aquila and Priscilla are kicked out of Rome because they're Jews and well, the emperor wants all the Jews out of the city because they're arguing over Christ. Well, some Jews believe that Jesus was a Christ. Some Jews did not accept Jesus as a Christ. And they began bickering in the capital city so much so that Claudius says, I want all the Jews out of the city. If you were to look at Acts 18.2, you would read about Aquila and Priscilla getting kicked out of Rome along with all the other Jews. And they're kicked out in AD 49 because they're bickering over the identity of Jesus, whether or not Jesus is the Christ. Now, it doesn't take long until the Gentiles come along and join the Jews in calling Jesus Lord. Paul writes this letter from the city of Corinth around A.D. 55, about, oh, five or six years after the Jews had been kicked out of Rome. He's on his way to Spain. On his way to Spain, he's going to go the opposite direction and go to Jerusalem. You remember, as you read Paul's epistles, you know, he's taking up an offering for the impoverished Jews in Jerusalem. As he travels to the churches like in Macedonia or in Greece, he collects this offering and he's going to take it to Jerusalem. And after he leaves Jerusalem, he wants to go to Rome. And after he leaves Rome, he wants to start this fourth missionary journey, as we would call it, and go to Spain. And Rome being in the West is a great foundation for this fourth journey he wants to take to Spain. He expects this church to support him financially and prayerfully and to be his base like Antioch had been his base for other missionary trips. Now, usually, Paul founds a church and then when he can't get back to the church because of travel or weather or whatever, he writes a letter in lieu of going back. And the letter represents a second visit to the church. So he starts a church and then he writes a letter like Corinthian correspondence because he, he can't get back there yet. Maybe it's fear of enemies. Maybe it's the Judaizers. Maybe it's the weather. Maybe it's working with another church, but he can't get back there. So he writes a letter. In this particular case, and this is the only case, he writes the letter before he ever visits. And the letter is not in lieu of his visit, but rather the letter of Romans is to prepare for the visit that he wants to make to Rome. So then he, that can be his mission base when he will go on to Spain. And so he writes this letter and oh, how he wants to visit them. Three times in today's lesson, he tells them, I want to be with you. Verse 10, verse 11, verse 13, oh, how long to be there. How many times have I tried to come to you, but I, I couldn't get there? Well, there's, there's three reasons he, he writes this letter. First of all, he's going to formally introduce himself. First of all, he writes the letter to formally introduce himself. If they're going to support his expansion of the gospel in Spain, if he's going to take the gospel west, which, by the way, we don't know if he ever gets to do. But if he's going to take the gospel west, they must meet him. So it's an introduction of himself. Secondly, he writes to explain his gospel. 
If they're going to be his mission base, and now they know who Paul is, they know his history, well, what is the gospel that he preaches and teaches and he builds and founds churches upon what gospel? And so in this letter, his longest letter, his letter deepest in theology, he explains his gospel. And then thirdly, as I've mentioned, he wants to set them up for his base, for his West missionary trip to Spain. Now, unlike the Corinthian letter, you know, sometimes in his letter he deals with local issues, like in the book of Corinthians, he's dealing with lawsuits or how they're doing the Lord's Supper or something pertains to that congregation. What makes Rome so rich is he's not dealing with particular problems of a particular congregation. It's not his church. He didn't found the church. He doesn't know of all the particular problems, but rather he's introducing a broad theological lesson about how we work with this Jesus being the Christ and how Judaism and the law and how it all incorporates the message of God that's been said and spoken to the prophets through Jesus. So the book of Romans is rich in that way. Well, let's begin. Look at verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Now, when we write letters, we don't start with a sender, which is, you ever received a letter and you say, well, now, who's this from? And you got to flip back to the back to see who wrote it. We don't, we, we kind of start backwards. They start with a sender, Paul. I'm the one bringing you the message. So he starts out identifying himself. So in Paul's letters, we start with the sender. We start with the recipient. We say, dear John or dearest John. And we say, dear John, whether he's our best friend or our worst enemy. That's kind of odd, isn't it? Dearest John, I, I can't stand you. We don't, we say, dearest John. Well, he starts out not with the recipient, but rather with the sender. Paul, Paul, well, now Paul would not do well in a contemporary composition class. We are teaching our students today to write shorter and shorter sentences. I don't know if that's good or bad, but it, we're getting our sentences down pretty short. Maybe that comes from texting or email or whatever, but these really long, would you know that verses one through seven are one sentence in the Greek? New Testament. One sentence. You, you try to diagram that thing. It's a lot of fun. It's, it's properly written. There's a subject and verb. There's movement. There's clauses. There's phrases. But one through seven amount to one sentence. I can hear the, the teacher writing. And it's like, you need to break this down into several sentences, Paul. That's what they say to him today. Well, he starts out with Paul. Paul comes from the Latin Paulus, which means little. It might be sort of like Shorty in our day. Shorty or Paul, the little one. In fact, there's some indication in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 that Paul is small in statue. And, and so Paul, of course, his original name is Saul, which is after the name of Israel's first king. But the name he uses here is Paul or Shorty, as we would say in our day. Well, Paul, the little one, a bond servant of Christ. Jesus. He is a bondservant of Christ Jesus. It's lofty language, and yet it's harsh words all at the same time. It's actually the word bondservant is the word for slave. Shorty, a slave of Christ 
Jesus. In the Old Testament, Abraham is called a slave of God. In the Old Testament, Moses is called a slave of God. In the Old Testament, Amos is called a slave of God. And so maybe Paul is making the insinuation that he stands in the great line of prophetic voices of ancient Israel. He is a slave of the divine like Abraham. He's a slave of the divine like Moses. He's a slave of the divine like Amos. And yet, notice, while Abraham and Moses and Amos are a slave of God, notice Paul changes it just a bit here. He is a slave of Christ Jesus, putting Jesus in the highest possible position with God. Normally, if you know the Old Testament, you are a servant, a bondservant of God. But Paul says he is a bondservant of no less than Christ Jesus, putting Jesus in the place of God. Now, it's estimated when Paul would have penned Romans that one in five citizens in the empire would have been in slavery. So they were all too familiar with the concept of slavery. They knew what it meant to be wholly owned by another one. And Paul wants them to know that he is wholly owned by Messiah Jesus. Well, Messiah himself, you remember, Paul tells us in Philippians, the one to whom Paul is a slave, the Messiah himself took on a slavehood. He became a slave and died a servant's death even on the cross. Well, notice what he says. Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus. Christ is the Jewish word, the Christos. It's the word for the anointed one. It is the word for the Messiah. And Jesus means Savior. Surely I am a slave of the Messiah and of the Savior. Notice, called as an apostle. Now, apostle means a messenger, one that sent. It's like the word ambassador. He's, a, he's an apostle set apart for the gospel of God. He is called. Paul wants the church in Rome to know there's a divine call upon his life. He shows the priority of the divine. It is a call from on high which Paul has answered. Paul was not self-chosen. Rather, he was on the road to Damascus. He was minding his own business as a Pharisee of Pharisees, and he saw the bright light, the resurrected Jesus, and he was called by God, set aside as an apostle to the Gentiles, set apart for the apostle of God. Now, the word gospel frames this book. Three times in our introduction today, we have the word gospel, gospel, gospel. In the last chapters, we have three times gospel, gospel, gospel. It's like bookends. And in the middle, we have the theology of Romans. But it starts with triple gospel. It ends with triple gospel. In fact, there's only three more times the word gospel is used in the book outside of these three at the beginning. And there's three at the end. What is the gospel? The gospel is the good news. It proclaims what God has done in keeping his promises to Israel and the raising of Jesus from the dead. The gospel proclaims what God has done in keeping his promises to Israel by raising Jesus from the dead. And in this gospel, 
there's implications for Gentiles too, for they will call Jesus Lord. Now, it's interesting what he calls the gospel. Notice what he says. Did you notice this unusual? The gospel of God. In verse 9, he calls it the gospel of his son. Usually it's the gospel of Christ. But in Romans, it is the gospel of God. It is the gospel of the Father. In saying it is the good news or the good story of God, he gives us the ultimate source of the story of Jesus. It comes, it begins with God himself. In fact, the word God is a the most important word in the whole book of Romans. If you've got to write Romans equals, you can say Romans equals God. It's used 153 times in this book. From beginning to end, the book of Romans is a book about God, who God is and how God has acted in the story of Jesus. Sometimes speaking of Jesus, Speaking of even the Holy Spirit, we tend to leave God himself out. And Romans remind us that God is our creator and God is our redeemer and God is our sustainer. And it is the story of Jesus is good news that begins with God himself. You can't understand the theology of Romans unless you understand the righteousness of God. You understand the holiness of God, the justification of God, the good news story comes from God. So Shorty, a slave of Messiah, Savior, called, didn't pick myself, as an apostle, an ambassador, I have been set apart for the gospel of God, which, verse 2, he promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures. He's saying through the prophets he spoken a moment ago. All this happening in the story, the gospel, the good news of his son has been spoken of through the prophets. It's not spoken by the prophets. No, it's spoken by God, but it is spoken through the prophets. The promise given by God. The very story of Jesus is the fulfillment of all that God has spoken in the old text. Through Moses, the Torah, and through the prophets, it's nothing new he's saying to his Jewish listeners. Promised beforehand through his prophets in God's word in the scripture. The whole story of Jesus is God's eternal workings with his people Israel. Well, notice verse 3. It does concern his son. It is the gospel of God, but look at the beginning of verse 3. The gospel of God concerning his son. Who is this son? Who's born a descendant of David according to the flesh. The prophets themselves had told us that the Messiah would come from the lineage of David. The prophets of old had told us he would be a descendant of David himself. Now, it's interesting. He's writing in all places like this. To Rome. Now, Rome is the greatest city in the world at this time. It is home of the most powerful person on the planet, Caesar. And what is Caesar called? The Son of God. And when Caesar is born, they held, it, they held that as good news. 
So it's ironic. The words are specifically chosen to the church in the capital city that he's going to tell them not about Caesar, but about the real son of God and not the good news of the birth of, of Caesar, but rather the good news of the birth of the Christ, the true king, the rightful Lord. In fact, the Christians in Rome should know there's one other than Caesar who is the true Lord. In fact, what Paul says about Jesus in this passage, especially three and four, is almost designed to stake a claim that puts Caesar in the shade. Well, look, look what the claims here in verse three and four. Concerning his son, who was born a descendant of David according to the flesh, who is declared the son of God with power by the resurrection of the dead according to the spirit of holiness, which is the Holy Spirit. Notice Jesus Christ, our Lord. Well, three things he's saying here. First of all, Jesus, not Caesar, is the true son of God. Jesus, not Caesar, is the true son of God. And if you think it's something to be born in a royal household in Rome, let me tell you, David was a thousand years before that. He's from a true lineage of a king. He's from the house of David. And number three, what no Caesar could claim is resurrection is a bizarre, is a bizarre miracle, a one-of-a-kind miracle. In the beginning with the resurrection of the dead, notice all that the Caesar could do was end life with the sword and cause death. But now in the resurrection, this Jesus has overtaken Rome because the worst Rome can do is kill its citizens. And now death has no sting. Look at verse 4. What a powerful statement. Jesus is declared the Son of God by the power of the resurrection from the dead. Well, I want you to see something maybe you've not picked up before. The resurrection from the dead. How is that word used in the New Testament? Most often when we use that word, we use it in regard to the, the resurrection of Jesus on Easter. And that's important and that's the beginning. But the reality is the resurrection of Christ is not about a solitary empty tomb, but rather it's about the beginning of the age of the resurrection. And the good news for all of us here who have loved ones who knew Christ as Lord and Savior who've died before us is in the empty tomb of Jesus, it begins the age of the resurrection. It's not about one man or a solitary tomb. It's about the beginning of the age of the resurrection of the dead. And he wants us to know at the end of verse 4, he is Jesus Christ, our Lord. Do you remember what Paul says in Romans 10? If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The three most important words of the early church are Jesus is Lord. Jesus is curios. Jesus is Lord. If we say Jesus is Lord and we believe that God raised Jesus from the dead, we are saved. That's the message, the kernel of Romans. In fact, he tells us in Corinthians, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy, the Holy Spirit. Well, in verse 5, it tells them grace and apostleship to bring about obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake. 
Grace is a gift from God. It's something that's God's favor. It's unmerited. We receive grace. But notice, when we receive grace, we're called to do something with it. He received his grace and a call to apostleship to lead Gentiles into the kingdom of God is what he's saying in verse 5. Obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake. The good news is not first and foremost about something that can happen to us. The good news is first and foremost about something that has already happened, that God has acted. He has given us his grace in the person of Jesus. God, Jesus has already been raised from the dead. He's already the Messiah and Israel's true king. Well, notice as we continue, to all who are beloved of God in Rome, called saints. Now, we use the word saints incorrectly. In, in Christendom, we've used saints for a really good Christian. We've used it of a certain person, like we might say St. Peter or St. Mary. It's never used that way in the New Testament. Saints is always plural in the New Testament. It always means everybody who calls Jesus Lord. So it's, it's not a superhero, but it's to all those who are called saints. To all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace. Now, Rome promised peace, but Rome brought peace at the end of a sword. They would murder and kill and enslave and then say, oh, there's Roman peace. But this is a different kind of peace. It is the real peace peace of God. In verses 8 through 15, he has what we call the prayer section. It's in all of Paul's letters except Galatians, and he's mad at them, so he doesn't give a thanksgiving in that one. But in all the other letters, we have a thanksgiving, and it's a prayer. So that prayer starts here in verse 8. Let's look at that. First, now there is no second. Now, Paul does that a lot. He'll say first and not say second. He doesn't really mean he's about to give you a list. He means like, let me begin this way. Let me begin this way. Let me begin. I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith has been, been proclaimed through the whole world. For God, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel, the good news of his son, is my witness how unceasingly I make mention to you. He's saying to them, I pray for you, the church in the capital city, all the time. Always in my prayer making requests, perhaps now, at last, by the will of God, I want to come to you. Look at verse 10. For I long to see you, he says it again, verse 11. I want to impart some spiritual gift to you that you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us, by the other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I've often, here's a third time, I've often planned to come to you and have been prevented thus far, nor that I may obtain some fruit among you also, even as the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and barbarians, both to wise and foolish. Thus, for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also, those who are in Rome. What do we learn from this introduction? First of all, the good news has been foretold by the prophets. Second of all, this good news is the good news of God. It is the gospel of Jesus, but it's, it's really, first and foremost, the good news of God, the gospel of God. Thirdly, in this good news, we have the sonship of Jesus proclaimed. His Messiahship trumpeted through his glorious resurrection from the dead. 
empowered by the Holy Spirit. So thirdly, his sonship or his messiahship is proclaimed by his resurrection from the dead. The fourth thing, the good news is that we're all called. We're set apart as a community. We're set apart to God that we would be his living community, both Jews and Greeks, the wise and the foolish. We're all called together to be the church. Paul is getting ready. He's about to begin the Roman road of theological reflection. I can tell you this. If you'll hang with me through this sermon series, if you don't know anything about any New Testament theology, if you'll stay with me through Romans, you will end with having a very good basic theology of all New Testament theology. It is all dealt with in this most lengthy, most theological rich letter written by Paul himself. Now you can see it is kind of like going to Mars, but we'll take it in small bites and we'll see what Paul is trying to say. And working together, we will work our way through this epistle. And at the end, I don't want you to say I'm confused about Romans. I want you to know what it's about. We're going to end with a lot of Roman scholars in this room. So you stay with me as we go through this. Probably the richest theological reflection in all the New Testament. Let's pray. The good news of God. The prophets have been fulfilled. One from the lineage of David, who's the real king, has arrived. His sonship declared in the empty tomb, powered by the Holy Spirit. We have the unmerited favor of God, the grace of God, and with that we are called to be community, to be saints together. leading people to call Jesus as Lord. And in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.